0: 18 through 25. They can be found on pages 1037 and 889 of the Bible's next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all Gentiles to faith and obedience for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are the loved by God and called to be his holy people grace and peace to you from our God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Which means God is with us. When Joseph woke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The word of the Lord.
1: I invite you to pray with me. As we begin, our God of grace, as we, um, as we come into this, this community center space shared by many groups, and we come in on Sunday and we warm this place up with our bodies and we with our laughter and with our hellos and welcomes, we come though um, from lives that are that are sometimes chaotic or sometimes filled with hurt or pain or wounds sometimes we're celebrating that um, you know that life is in a really good place and it seems like you answered prayers sometimes we're, we're depressed um, sometimes we don't make it here because we we can't get out of bed um, sometimes we're hurting for someone else in our life sometimes we're embroiled in conflict and we have combinations of anger and self-righteousness and and yet and hurt uh, that, are, that are just dominating our mental space. And from all these places we come, whether we're, we have great faith or are filled with doubt, um, we come all more of a mess than we care to admit. And our lives are filled with the beauty that you have implanted in us, that you have created us for. Just so much beauty in this room, and yet at the same time, more, more brokenness and flawedness and... Um, and, and lives lived off-target than we want other people to know, than we care to admit. And then this, this book that we read from, these words speak to us of a story where you enter into the flawed world to redeem it, to renew it, to, to make it new, to make things whole that are already broken, and we sit here as broken souls and that is a message of great wonder to us. We think, do, what do we have to do to get that to happen? What do, what do you want from us so that we can make our lives better or right or whole again? And you, and you laugh and say, no, I've already done it. You don't understand. That's why I came, to, do, to, to love you and to give you what you need to be made whole before you can even attempt to do it yourself. And so you you approach us with grace. We're more broken than we care to admit, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. And I pray that that message of grace will speak to us not only now, but through the songs and through the table of communion in a little bit, and through this season um, as we look to the birth of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. I got a phone call of several weeks ago and you know on, on an iPhone it sometimes will show the city that it's from and, and I didn't answer it because my cell phone is also still the church phone so I get all kinds of you know calls for your church needs a new roof and your church needs new carpet you know and um, I get all these calls so I just don't answer them usually and this call said and where it's, the city was it said truth or consequence New Mexico And I was, I just was like, is that, that is so bizarre, I have no idea what that even means. Is that a real thing? So I went online and looked and and sure enough it was. So the the town with the strangest name in the United States is Truth or Consequence New Mexico. They changed their name because of a radio program that used to be popular and they had a contest, the first town to change their name wins the contest. Truth or Consequence New Mexico. I asked this question of the week last week, what is the strangest name you've ever encountered? And people wrote these, uh, you know, and you can do this, there's, there's, there's contact card questions every week. One of the names someone wrote in was Ulysses, not Ulysses, but Ulysses, like, like delicious. Um, that's one of the names. I love some of these. Uh, another name was Kazard, Kazard, um, Tasmania. Asmodeus. And, um, and then somebody wrote in that their hippie kindergarten teacher's name was June Noon Moon. <laughs> and my personal favorite, I don't know if this is real, Justin Case. You think, I don't know, yeah, that might be a write-in, I don't know. Weird names, strange names. Um, Ikea, the furniture, you know, the furniture store, Ikea, came up with this, uh, this marketing campaign where they changed... You know, they already have, if you've ever been to Ikea, they already have pretty wacky names for their products. You can't pronounce them. They're these Swedish names or something. So they, they're doing this campaign where they're renaming furniture items after relationship questions that have been Googled. And so here's a few of the examples. This bed is named How to Have a Happy Relationship. <laughs> Um, the next one uh, is a, a toothbrush holder that is called He Doesn't Want to Move in Together. Toothbrush holder and suction cup. And then the garlic press. How to say I'm not interested. This is a real, like, marketing campaign that Ikea is doing. Strange names. And here we are on uh, the story that was read. is from Matthew chapter 1. It's Matthew's version of the birth conception and birth story of Jesus. It's shorter than the Luke version, which will be the focus of our Saturday night, Christmas Eve service. And yet it has its own nature to how it is told. It's a little less familiar than the Luke passage, you know, the, the Charlie Brown uh, Christmas story. But in the Gospel of Matthew, as he starts it out, there's some names that are, he, he, you can almost tell the story through the names that are mentioned, and that's actually what we're going to do. Um, there's names that are dropped in the story, and they're not just kind of like, you know, just when you kind of mention a name in passing. They're, They're big. They're significant. And they're even significant, not just for, you know, back then when Matthew was writing this gospel. These are names that tell us something about what it means to have Jesus arrive in our life. You know, not just for the first time, but over the span of a life of faith as well. So three names. Three names that are dropped in this story. Son of David, Joshua, and Emmanuel. First of all, Son of David. That song we sang earlier, great, uh, uh, something like King David's Greater Son. Son of David. In verse, in verse 20, the angel says to Joseph, actually, Joseph, Son of David. Calls him by that name. Joseph, that's how this starts out. That's how the message begins to come to Joseph that something special is going to happen. Joseph, son of David. in the first century Jews were pretty excited about the concept of a Davidic king, a king from the line of David. They were politically oppressed. They didn't really have a king. They, their, their political will didn't have a way to move forward. So in their imaginations were was the memory as a people of this great King David from long ago. In their memory as a people were also Scripture, Scripture references that someone would come from the, and here's some of the other lingo, the root of Jesse or from David's stump or Jesse's stump. So the idea that long ago there was this really amazing King David and and that was the golden era of this people that Jesus was born into. This is a golden era. When their political situation was safe and secure, and they had, they were stable. They also, um, they also had a lot of things and stuff. Life was good in those days. They longed for that, and there's a mystical power to it, coming from, you know, technically from the actual lineage of David, and you know, a, a descendant of David. Joseph, son of David, he's a descendant of David. To understand this and to understand how it applies to us, it's helpful to go back even further. And to, there's this, this whole story. I, I really I remember this even from, from being a kid in Sunday school. I don't know if any of you had memories of passages from and stories from Sunday school. Some of you grew up maybe going to church like I did. And um there's a story where the the whole all the people of Israel they're safely and securely now in the promised land after they're fleeing from Egypt. And God has really just led them mysteriously in all these crazy ways. These really obvious big ways, clouds and, and you know all these things. And, and yet the people come to this point and they say, "We want a king." And they go to their prophet Samuel and they say, "You know, anoint a king. We want a king on a throne, just like all the other people around us." And um, and this is what Samuel said, or this is what God says to Samuel. Samuel doesn't like this request. He says, "God is your king." But God says listen to all that the people are saying to you it is not you that they have rejected but they have rejected me as their king as they have done from the day i brought them up out of egypt until this day forsaking me and serving other gods so they are doing to you now listen to them but warn them solemnly and let them know what a king that a king will reign over them will claim as his rights and so he does he warns them and nonetheless what they finally say is and they're like shouting it The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see a little bit of an unhealthy desire for a a physical, tangible king to rest your political hopes, your hopes for stability and your hopes for stuff and your hopes for life to go well. You sense that in this. And as Matthew's writing this, he seems to be tapping in the first century to that same ethos. And we have some of that still today, you know, think like politically, you know, we still have like one election comes in 2008 and a whole bunch of people say, finally someone to represent, you know, these things, finally for these agendas to move forward. And then 2016 comes and then a whole another set of people come out and they say, finally a person to represent these things. And sometimes you know around Christmas time you go, you're hanging out with family and the tensions of those things are all around. I was at a Christmas party last night and I you know, this different opinions about which who's happy about what kind of political representation that comes. That's all that's all connected to this first century stuff. If there's gonna be a king from the Davidic line, the line of David. And Matthew just only heightens all this. He starts out, one of the first words in his gospel in chapter one that we didn't read is, is David. You know, this person comes in, the, he's a son of David, and then he lays out this whole genealogy focused all around it being David's line. Matthew's heightening, he even does some, some nerdy scholar biblical stuff here where he, he has sets of 14 within the lineage, and 14 is the, the Hebrew numerical equivalent of the words DVD in Hebrew, David. So there's this, you know, there's this huge emphasis coming in on David, David, You know, almost getting these hopes up. So is it a return to that ancient Israel's angst and hope for political things? And you know what? It's not. It's not. It's different. In fact, look at how in, in verse, uh, what, what the angel says, or no, even what the story says twice. She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And the angel says, conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is different. In fact, Matthew's point is huge. This is not the arrival of a political figure, a tangible king figure that's going to get the things in order the way you want them. This is God himself. This is a return really to what God was saying in 1 Samuel They've rejected me as king. And God says, I'm not going to stand here while all my children reject me as king. I'm actually going to enter in and become. I'm going to enter in so tangibly, so present, so much into their world and show them that I'm their king. I'm going to become their king. I am your king, not the political rulers. You trust me. One of the things we trust, I mean, we, one, you know, we trust political things. We also trust, we also tend in our era right now to really trust ourselves. We tend to enthrone ourselves. That's really comfortable for us. In fact, one writer, the writer of this book I'm reading now called um, Spiritually Healthy, um, no, what is it? Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Peter Scazzaro. He says, our most natural prayer is, my Father in heaven, hallowed be my name, may my kingdom come, may my will be done on earth. He says we're afraid of God's will being done because we can't control what he will do, yeah? When he, when he will do it, how he will do it, and what the outcome will be. God requires surrender and trust. Um my kids listen to all kinds of Pandora stations and they're always switching the station and fighting over the station. And one of the stations played this song this week from that 1994 movie, Lion King. And I, and I actually caught the words. I usually just drown it all. I just let it all go in one ear, out the other. And I heard these words from Simba in the song. Oh, I just can't wait to be king. No one's saying do this. No one's saying be there. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. No one's saying stop that. No one's saying, see here, free to run around all day, free to do it all my way. That's us. That's our, that's our way of having a king. And God, God arriving, God arriving into your life, must press in on that. Just the way that, that God arriving, as in the line of David, as the son of David, but he's King David's greater son. It's God. He's not arriving in all, the, in all the ways that you want your agenda done. He's arriving in a way that says, just trust and, and, and let me press in on all those impulses you have of where your trust is going. So that's the first word, the, the son of David. The second name that we catch here and that we're going to focus on is Joshua. Joshua. You actually don't really see it in here. It's a little tricky, but Joshua is the Hebrew name. Jesus is the Greek version. Um, And I just bring up Joshua for two reasons, to connect us to the ancient story that when Jesus was named, he was named something that was already very familiar, that already existed. But also in the name itself, Joshua, is, is a combination of the Hebrew words that's speaking about the Lord saving. And so that's what's declared here. You are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Joshua, Jesus. So our flawedness, if we're talking about saving, being saved from sins, we're talking about our flawedness. And it creates trouble in our lives. Our, my flawedness creates trouble in my life. Other people's flawedness creates trouble in my life. And in 2016, if I think through, I think, yeah, okay, it happened again. My flawedness created some stuff. Yeah? It resonate, people? Yeah? You're, can you think of <laughs> I can. I can think of stuff. 2016. Okay. My flawedness. And so what we tend to do, because this is our reality, is we're causing problems and troubles ourselves and other people. We can blame it all on other people, but you've got to eventually look inward and say, I'm part of the problem. What we tend to do is we have some way in which, just as the passage is saying Joshua will save the people from their sins, um, we tend to look for a way to get saved from these problems and these troubles. And we tend to have different things we latch in on, and we say, Okay, yeah, I'm not perfect, but, you know, uh, at least I'm doing this, or at least I'm trying to go get this together over here. So we go to our work, we go to our achievements, we go to self-improvement, um, we go to relationships, we go to exercise, we go to appearance, we escape, we go to money, we go to feeling good. You know, name your way of seeking to kind of get saved from the trouble that builds up in your life. Joshua it's a way of saying only god can truly save you from your flawedness it's a way of a, it's a way like you think about this baby being conceived in mary by the holy spirit and god entering in it's a way of god almost saying enough's enough i'm going to do it i'm going to i'm going to save you stop looking elsewhere I will say that one of the things that's most compelling to me about the Christian faith, you know, when you when I cycle through um, some of the questions about faith and wonder about it and, and ask myself, when I talk to other people who just can't get it, they just can't cross through their doubts or their questions, and I think about, well, why? What has it been for me that kind of just sits secure in me that this this faith, that this story, resonates and rings true? A lot of it goes down to how. The story of God dealing with with my flawedness, my sin, is the most satisfying thing that I've ever experienced in life. The way that the gospel tells the story of, it basically tells me there, there is no way I'm gonna wrap it up and tie it up and save myself and that I need to be rescued and saved and that God entered in and and took it on his own shoulders in the most unexpected way through Jesus, through suffering. Not through politics, not through winning, but through the lowly path of suffering and bearing the weight of my flawedness and yours on his shoulders. It's compelling to me. It it makes sense of my flaws and the flaws of those around me that cause me trouble. Recently, um, I think this was probably about 20, 25 days ago, my wife and I started a 10-day su- a sugar detox. So the idea, you know, you've heard maybe some of the research and some of the people coming on the radio and telling about what sugar is doing and how our bodies operate and all this good stuff. Um, I was intrigued. So when, when Lisa brought it up and had kind of a plan, I was on board because I had already been hearing all this stuff. Um, but it was difficult. This is 10 days, I mean it was 10 days of shifting everything and doing all this hard stuff with how we eat. And, 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 you know, you're messing with a lot of just your nitty-gritty life habits when you do something like this. You're, and you're, you're starting to realize, you know, I need to be in therapy because I'm <laughs> wanting to get a drink and get this food. And, you know, and you, realize, you realize you're paving over things with food, right? Um... It's tough, it's difficult, but there is a sense, you know, if, if I can, you know, in this sugar detox we were doing, if, if we can try hard enough, if we can just be disciplined and self-controlled, we can get through this and we can save ourselves of the demon of sugar or whatever, you know, we can, we can, we can beat this if we work hard enough. It's, it takes rigor and discipline and focus and self-control, and it, and it really does. If you don't have those things, you know, you kind of just fall off the wagon and you give up because it's too hard. So the, the premise of that is there's a problem in your life and you've got to detox from it. It's addictive, it's bad, it's negative. You've got to do all this work to get out of it. And, um, and I think, like, how does God working with us, how is it similar? Well, most of us think that it works kind of like that. Most of us think that to get close to God or to get kind of whatever the prize is with God, we're going to have to just do 10 days of just, you know, oh, just do it, just grind through it and be disciplined. You know, and that has to come first. And it, it absolutely, that is not the way the Christian faith works. And calling this savior, calling, this, calling the son of Joseph, Joshua tells us that, tells us he will save you from your flawedness. He will come in and detox before you've even realized you need it, before you've even put out any effort. Joshua, Jesus, it declares to us, don't hope for that kind of spiritual solution. I will arrive, I will detox your life. There's a, there's a great simple way this is spoken of in one of the old uh, catechisms from the 16th century called the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior, the answer? Because he saves us from our sins. And because salvation, and this is what we need to hear, salvation should not be sought and cannot be found in anyone else. So we've got the son of David, we've got Joshua, and then we've got Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And the text tells us, very simple, the, the text quotes an old passage from Isaiah saying, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. In your worship guide, there's this quote that kind of gets into this God arriving, God crashing into our world. God being with us. And it goes like this. This It's a poem written by Sam Guterres. God pulled up wearing dark shades of night. Escorted by an angel entourage, God avoided the press and slipped in through the back door. Someone inside leaked the news to some shepherds who dished the story to the star, Bethlehem's favorite tabloid. In the morning, those waiting in supermarket lines read the gossip, God crashes club. I like that. I like it playing with the idea of, yeah, what what do what does it feel like? What does it mean that God is with us? That God has come and arrived and crashed our world. And what is the significance for you and me of of living in a world where the belief of this stuff, this, this, all of this, Advent, Christmas, Christianity, um, lighting the Christ candle on Saturday night at 6 p.m. What does it all really mean? It means God is really present. God is, God is really here. Very, very, diff- very easy to just say that. Very difficult to live with that on your mind, with that as a tangible truth in your existence. As you sit here today, as you go out to your jobs, as you live your life, and it's a transition that's going to get, in a sense, it's going to get very personal and uncomfortable and yet hugely rewarding if you can enter into it. It's going to involve a transition for you from religious activity to being in God's presence and resting in the presence of God, God with us. Does that transition sound like something that is appealing to you? Resting in the presence of God. It has you doing business with things like um, the possibility that you are here right now not as an accident, that you're sitting here and in the seat that you're sitting on this day um, because, of, because God has arranged it. It has you deal with the uh, reality that, you know, the, the people that are newly in your life, maybe there's some new people in your life, that they are in your life, not on accident, but God has placed them there. There's, the, at your job, you are in your job for a reason, that you're, you know, you, you go to the school and the classes that you got into for a reason you have the parents and the siblings and the kids that you have very much for a reason. It's not all an accident. God is with us. God is with you. And God is going to meet you in, in a lot of these ways in these places that I've just mentioned. It'll, it'll force some slowing down, I think, for most of us. Again, from my new favorite author, Peter Scazzaro. Uh, he says, our natural progression is from... The give-me, give-me, give-me attitude of a small child. He's talking about our relationship with God. This is where we start. Give-me, give-me, give-me attitude of a small child to a more mature way of relating where we delight in being with God as our Abba Father. He says there's a natural progression that we make, and he says it's fourfold. It starts with talking at God. Right? Has anybody done that? Talk at God. Then there's talking to God. So you picture this is kind of a maturing progression, talking to God, and then you have listening to God, and then finally you have being with God. Emmanuel, God with us. He describes it as, finally we simply enjoy being in the presence of God who loves us. This is far more important than any particular activity we might do with him. His presence makes all life fulfilling. Let us pray. We pray to you, son of David, we pray to you, Joshua, Jesus. We pray to you, Emmanuel. And we invite your presence. And we don't control it. We don't even know what to say, what kind of manifestation of your presence we should ask for. But we do invite you. We ask for your presence. And for those of us who sit here this morning, just, just really not, not, just if we're honest, not really expecting or seeing or believing that you are really that active in our lives or in the world today, we especially pray that you would be with us, Emmanuel. That you'd help us at whatever issue of belief or hurt or wounds that need healing, wherever your presence needs to manifest itself, pull on our mental or emotional strings so that our attention draws towards you and so that we too can move through that progression towards just a place where we can be with you, where we can rest in your presence. And please speak to us with that presence through the table of grace in a few minutes as we have a chance to celebrate communion.
0: We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.